Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley and today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Richard Harries, former Bishop of Oxford. He was that title for 19 years, now a life peer in the House of Lords. And we're going to be hearing about his life journey, his story, his latest book, The Beauty and the Horror as well. And the profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to get a free sample copy of the latest edition, do go to their website at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And don't forget, you can find the profile as a podcast as well, increasingly popular as a podcast online. So do uh, check that out and check out past episodes of the profile at our website, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Richard, welcome along to the program. Thank you, Justin. It's great to have you here. As I understand it, you didn't really grow up in a Christian household particularly. So tell us about the the sort of formation, as it were, of your Christian life as things got going for you. Well, I was never sent to Sunday school. We never went uh, to church uh, as children. I mean, later in life, my parents came into the church in, in, a, in a very big way. But I can remember my mother saying she couldn't get my father into church uh, even on Christmas Day for 20 years. So there wasn't, wasn't any church there. The one time we went to church, and I remember this very vividly because apparently there was meant to be an outstanding preacher at a local village. So my parents thought, well, they'd, they'd go along, take me along. And I remember thinking to myself, I can remember, still feel the feeling. Total ham, I said to myself. Total ham. <laughs> Absolutely unconvincing. Um, so so I was starting from, 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 from that. Yes. I went through the rigmarole of being confirmed at school, and it did mean something to me. I tried to take it seriously in a sort of rather schoolboyish kind of way. But ultimately, it, it, was, it was an experience a little later on that really kind of brought you to that place, I understand, where, where you sort of asked yourself the question is, is this really true, I suppose? Yes, I mean, it, it, it was, I suppose, when it was about 18, a thought came into my mind, well, if Christianity is true, it must be at the centre of my life. If it's untrue, uh, it can't be at the periphery, right. give it up altogether. So I started to look into the faith, reading books, gravitated to certain friends who had a Christian faith, and it, it gradually took hold of me. What, what did your parents make of all this, meanwhile? Uh, well, at that stage, they definitely didn't know very much about it. It was only later on uh, when I suddenly decided uh, that I was being called to ordination that they became horrified. <laughs> later on, Con, they, they came hugely supportive later on, hugely supportive later on. And entered uh, the church themselves, as far yes, as I understand Yes, exactly. Yes. My father became a church warden and all that, right. all that kind what, of thing. What was the catalyst for their, their change of mind themselves in that sense on, um, on faith? Well, I, th- I think my mother had always had a rudimentary faith. Uh, which never had a proper way of, ex- of kind of expressing it. Uh, I think my, f- my father in middle age must have gone through some kind of midlife crisis because I can remember uh, when he was away in Singapore, he, start- he started to lose weight, started to read people like uh, Uspensky and Gujayev, you know, who are great sort of figures at some stage. He started to, to look around into that kind of world. Um, and then he, I noticed, you know, he started to gravitate to Christian literature and started to go. I don't know what mm. what, the, what there was, but he'd obviously start, you know, Made went a on difference. a journey. Went a yeah. journey, yes. Yeah. And there's some words of T.S. Eliot, uh, which he pinched. He pinched all the best lines, of course, from <laughs> the wonderful 13th, 14th century mystical work, The Cloud of Unknowing. And he quotes them at the end of the Four Quartets. 
the drawing of this love and the voice of his call, of this calling, the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling. That was my experience. Something, something took hold of me. Something drew me. Something mm. called me. Uh, and then that calling became very real all of a sudden, not just to, you know, to, to live and, and to believe and live as a Christian, but I was in the library one day and looking for the usual hardy novel or something, and by accident or providence or whatever, I picked up a book of essays by Roman Catholic priests entitled Why I Was Ordained. Don't ask me why. <laughs> and I read it with interest and I put it down. I remember thinking to myself, well, wouldn't it be funny if one day I was ordained? Uh, and every few months that come back. Wouldn't it be funny if one day was ordained? <laughs> now, I was just about to go up to Cambridge on the army to read science, serving out in Germany just before I, 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 was, I was due to go up. Mm. Uh, and um, the thought came into my mind, well, you know, when I retired from the army as a successful general with a nice fat army pension, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to end my days as a country parson? <laughs> I'm not joking. You had that's a sort a, of romantic yeah, vision yeah, yeah, of, of that And lifestyle. then immediately slap bang came into my mind the thought, well, if you're meant to be doing it, you better do it now. I'm not joking. And it totally exploded inside Gosh. me. So I could do no other. I wrote to the Queen asking her to let me go. I went up to Cambridge, uh, and uh, the college which was going to have me to read science refused to have me to read <laughs> theology because they didn't do it. So I simply wrote round to all the colleges saying, uh, can anybody have mercy on me? I want to come up and read some theology. <laughs> went up on no money. It got, Selwyn kindly offered me a place and went up and, and read theology. But I could only have done that. Right. Because, you know, this this extraordinary strong yes. feeling which literally precipitated me. It was almost from beyond yourself, this feeling. Well, it, wherever it came from, well, it was obviously within me. It was a volcanic explosion yes. within me. My parents were absolutely horrified. They thought <laughs> they got me launched and somebody else was paying for me to go to university. Right, they thought you had a very nice career they, they in the army and then they got, into they got me off their hands and everything, right. yeah. Gosh, so, uh, this was a, no, so it was a, a big very, diversion from it the, was, the plan. It was, very, mm. and... Uh, uh, of course, I've been so blessed. It's been such a wonderful life. Yes, absolutely. And and wherever this, you know, thought came from, if 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 this stuff is true, if Christianity is true, then I'd better take it seriously. Obviously, lots of people do coast through life yeah. with maybe a sort of glancing familiarity yeah. with Christianity. You know, yeah, church, yeah. Easter, Christmas, yeah, yeah. births, yeah. funerals. Never quite, though, really deciding on on yeah, whether this yeah. stuff is true or not. But as yeah. I think Sage Lewis famously said, you, you know, either it's the most important thing in the world or it's not important yeah. at all. It, what yeah. it can't be is moderately important. And, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I suppose you sort of had that experience. I did, ha I did have that feeling. I, I did feel, you know, if it's if it's true, uh, it, it must be at the centre yeah. of my life because it is so important, so yeah. crucial. And and at what point did sort of the person of Jesus Christ, in that sense, become become a real thing to you from from being a sort of I suppose, somewhat I, half, half thought about reality to, to a living reality. Well, my understanding of God has always been a God which has been shaped and formed by Jesus Christ. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I think uh, that the, the person of Jesus has become more important to me over, over, the, over, over the years. Mm. Um, I think that, that's all I, can, all I can say. But my, fund, my view of God right from the word go is fundamentally was fundamentally Jesus yeah. Christ, um, and um, and the incarnation uh, again. But I came to believe in the incarnation in a funny kind of way. It was not reading a Christian book. 
I nearly hadn't read the kind of Bible at all. Found <laughs> it. I, I was reading Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. I can still remember in a great barrack room in Germany built under Hitler's time. Uh, and I was le- in my room and reading Aldous Huxley's Perennial Philosophy, the idea that at the heart of all religions is the idea of giving yourself and find yourself. I think, remember thinking, I said, well, you know, if that's what's at the heart of every religion, well, you know, what is a better example than this than the God right. of Jesus Christ yeah. who gives himself to create the world, who gives himself in Jesus Christ? To, the, the penny yeah, dropped you know, so in the that penny sort of dropped, Well, this yeah. is what the incarnation is about, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, one of, those, one of those sort of light bulb moments. Right, yes. <laughs> I mean, you've already given away that, that you, you have had a love affair with literature. Yeah. your whole life really yeah. and, and your latest book The Beauty and the Horror as well as many others you've written draw on all kinds of mm, yeah. po- poets and yeah. writers and playwrights and so on to, to, to draw out the meaning of life yes. um, has that just been something that's naturally been there you've yes. been a naturally a bookish sort yeah, of I've a been person naturally, but my parents were abroad a lot and left me in this country a lot and um, I picked up books, you know, if, if you're in that position. Yeah. In those days, there was no television. But you weren't only... a sort of go out and play football type. Oh, yes, were... I, yes, I've loved sport. Oh, yes, right. I loved, I've always loved sport. Yes, very, very keen on sport. But um, I've, always, I've, always enjoyed, I've always enjoyed books, right from the, right from the word mm. go. I've picked up books and read books. Um, and um, uh, one of my most extraordinary memories is I always, at the school I was at, the, the housemaster used to come round the dormitory every night to see what boys were up to. He used to come and knock on my door and open up. And he used to see me in bed reading a novel. And his words still ring in my mind, you know, my, my, why aren't you working? But the short answer is I always went to bed early and read novels. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? I mean, what, what, obviously a lot of these strike you very deeply because – when I've spoken to you before this program, you, you seem to be able to draw on mm. quotes and mm. pieces of literature at will. Uh, so it's almost as though th- some of these. Yes, it's a fault actually. It's a strength. Uh, it, it, I, I wish it a fault. I mean, the trouble in my mind tends to leap from quotation to quotation. <laughs> That's the, I try to get out of the habit. It's very very difficult. <laughs> but it, it's great in a sense that you you really see the world in a sense as as being described by people in in books in literature it, it, people are making sense of the world people are it. making sense of the world and you're entering into other people's lives and mm. expanding your own sympathies entering into into people's that, lives that's the beauty of literature isn't it that you yeah. can as it were live other lives yes, exactly. by 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 engaging with it you yes. can you you're opened up to a, a yeah. whole new world yeah. and and in that sense how how uh, has the bible sort of how have you engaged with the bible uh, you again know, i think the life? bible has meant more and more to me uh, over 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 the years i think mm. particularly recent recent years you can get periods where you go away from it mm. and you re- read other other things and then you come back and uh, and uh, and find it all again again fresh but again you know the bible is absolutely absolutely fundamental as i say i think it means more to me now than it ever has right. done in the past when it comes to the great um, novelists and writers if you could sort of choose maybe two or three who who have most powerfully spoken to you in ways that not only illuminated the world but the, your christian faith mm. um and they may not be typically thought of as quote-unquote mm. christian yeah. writers who, who would you land well on, i think, think inevitably uh, dostoevsky um his novels crime and punishment for example uh and but particularly the brothers karamazov where the great issues of suffering and evil and love and faith are debated in the profoundest way possible so that would be my number one choice 
the book which probably had the most biggest influence on my faith. It's T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, which I could go back to. For those who time. aren't familiar with T.S. Eliot, just describe who, who, who they were and what, what, what well, their Well, T.S. Well, Eliot was the great uh, poet. I mean, he was the best-known uh, poet of the avant-garde uh, in the 1920s. And he spoke for a disillusioned generation in his great poem, The, the Wasteland, regarded mm. very often as the greatest poem of the 20th century, completely broke all the canons of poetry, mm. a modernist poem of modernism, of modern modernism. Uh, and he spoke for that whole constituency. And then suddenly, uh, to a shocked world, he announced in 1927 that he now described himself uh, as a classicist in literature, a royalist in politics, and an Anglo-Catholic in religion. <laughs> uh, and he was ba- he'd been baptised secretly the year before, mm. and baptised and confirmed secretly. Didn't, the church doors were locked, so you know, he didn't want anybody. But it, it shocked and horrified all his friends. Here he was, uh, you know, the, 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 the leader of the avant-garde, the agnostic, atheistic avant-garde, for whom religion meant absolutely nothing. And they were all absolutely appalled um, and uh, he, he, he started writing poetry from Christian point of view then his first, first Christian poem Ash Wednesday, Song of Simeon uh, today is February the 1st, the Feast of Candlemas about Simeon Lord now let us thou thy servant depart in peace mm-hmm. he wrote a poem about that, that get, and Rotz read every Sunday in so many ch- any Christmas in so many churches his poem The Journey of the Magi mm-hmm. but um, at the end of the 1930s 1940s he wrote his masterpiece The Four Quartets uh, which is an amazing work I can go back to time and again obviously something for people to, to pick up if they've, if they've not done so uh, it, it, it sounds as though you've been on this journey then, um, discovering the world and Christianity with the help of certain authors and, mm. and literature. You you had this epiphany almost where you felt this calling to yeah. be a priest yourself. Yeah. Um, how did that manifest itself initially in, in terms of you, the first sorts of ministry that you were involved in? Well, the, the odd thing is that, um, not the odd thing, but, but I had a, what I imagined when I offered myself for ordination, I had a very, very simple di- di- vision of what I'd be doing, which would be knocking on the houses uh, of, of in northern cities, <laughs> bringing them <laughs> solace and comfort. I don't know. I sort of imagined a grey, dreary day, sort of raining, raining and miserable people, and me looking, you know, bringing them some, 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 some hope, some hope. Um, it's extraordinary, uh, really, that I should. But anyway, that's that's. Uh, that I had no slightly no, naive but, but, view yeah, of. of what I had no expense yeah. of the church, you of see. Course. I'd never meet yeah. a member of a church. No, no. I mean, we had school chapel, and I, I went to church when I was in the, the regimental. It's not a. I never, never had no experience of, no. of parish life. Of course, I wouldn't be recommended for ordination. Now, that's the extraordinary. I'd be get nowhere near it. You that's know. interesting, now, isn't now, it? Now they want people, you know, with a bit vast, more experience vast, vast and everything. Experience. Yes, yes, sure. Yes. Well, that's interesting in itself that, that in a sense, you, you, yeah. you've been formed on the journey. Uh, as a, as a priest uh, and yes. so on. Um, I mean, when when it comes, you you obviously have this very academic side to you, though, well, and, and you wanted to express that presumably. Well, as well in I know, but I'd already, I, I basically have always seen myself fundamentally as a as a, as a, as, a, as a parish priest. I've got diverted into other things, um, but I I went to Cambridge. I read theology, then I went to Cudston Theological College, uh, and did some more study there, and then I went to Hampstead. Hampstead Parish Church, and had six gloriously happy years there. I was married then, and had a, we had a couple of, of, of children. 
Um, and that was a wonderful life. And I did university chaplaincy as well. That was one. And this was in the swinging 60s. That right. was an extraordinary time. Of course. You know, uh, people don't realize quite what the 60s was like. I mean, I was the, the professor of maths at, the, at uh, Westfield College where I was uh, chaplain went off to man the barricades in France, in yes. Paris. You know, Gosh. it was an extraordinary, yes. extraordinary time. Social upheaval. We, we thought yeah. that the world was going to change. We were all in, deeply involved in Christian Marxist dialogue and all right. that sort of thing. So I had six beautiful half a years there. And then all I wanted then was to run a parish of my own somewhere in London. And nothing was actually available uh, at the time that I wanted. Uh, I knew except it's the one time in life I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted um, a, a kind of middle city mixed socially parish. I didn't want an inner city eclectic parish, and I didn't want to, a church with due respect to Woking, with, with in Ian Forster's uh, words, worship the great the, the great suburban Jehovah. Um, I I knew what I wanted a middle city London parish, which was socially mixed, and there simply wasn't anything available. So after six years, I had to move on. I saw an advertisement for somebody to teach uh, philosophy, religion, and ethics at Wales Theological College. I applied for that, and I was appointed. And that was a wonderful, because Mm. you're lecturing week in, week out, sets a foundation for everything else one does. And then the dear Bishop of London time uh, knew exactly, remembered, good man, remembered what I wanted. He wrote to me and said, dear Richard, think I've got what you wanted, you know, what you wanted those years ago, and that is to be Vicar of All Saints Fulham, which was precisely what I wanted. So I had nine very hard years there, uh, you know, sort of my early 30s when you've got plenty of energy, mm. ambition, but mm. you've got a bit of wisdom, socially mixed parish and, you know, wonderful opportunities for sort of building up the congregation. And, uh, oh, and but you're, you, since then, you know, and there's so much to cover here that you've been in all kinds of different positions. You were the dean of King's, King's College yeah, London yeah, for, yeah. for a period in the yeah. 1980s, I think it yeah, was. And right. um, you went on to obviously become the Bishop of Oxford yeah. then uh, thereafter and uh, and so uh, was that a sort of a, just a natural progression or was this all everything, very much a surprise e- to e- you? <laughs> everything, has been, everything has been a surprise. As I say, the only job I ever wanted was that, that first job right. and eventually it came my way after a bit of waiting and being yes. distracted. Fundamentally, wonderfully, wonderfully mm. diverted because yeah. it had been so fundamental to me. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'd, I'd done nine years at uh, Fulham, which was quite a, really quite a tough job actually it's quite a difficult it's a good difficult job being a mm. parish priest Absolutely, actually yeah. yeah and um then i was asked to apply for i didn't want to move it move but uh, i was asked by four or five people to apply for the job of dean of kings and then suddenly i'd been there about seven years and a letter dropped through the door uh opened in it was from margaret thatcher saying would you allow your name to go forward to be I didn't Gosh. even know that the diocese was vacant. I didn't follow <laughs> ecclesiastical Tame Totally, totally out of the blue. I suppose that sort of meant a whole new learning curve for you as you as you entered that type of a role with all well, its responsibilities. I, well, I, I found it. I have to say, I found it very natural. You know, right. I, I, mean, yeah. I didn't didn't find it difficult. Frankly, okay. I mean, diocese lots of wonderful diocese, lots of very very good people, yes, yes. able to have afford better resources than mm, a lot of dioceses. Mm. I pointed some good fortune to point some wonderful people as area bishops because it's a vast diocese and I had three area bishops sure. uh, split, split into areas. No, So, no, it was a wonderful 
Uh, and I, it was near enough London to be able to do things in the House of Lords and, yes. and to do. To do I that. mean, Oxford. I, I was there as an undergraduate myself, and the, the 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 town itself has a number of thriving churches. Yes, obviously, yes, absolutely. Both within the evangelical yes. sort of side of things and in the Anglo-Catholic yeah, side of yeah, things, yeah. and so on. So it's quite a. Um, you know, th- th- there's everything for everyone yeah. uh, in terms of the ang- Anglican yeah, representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, broadly speaking, have you s- tended to see yourself as more in the sort of Anglo-Catholic tradition over a, an evangelical sort of perspective or a um, liberal perspective? I, I, I'd say that the when I was it was it, yes, it was the, what I would call the Catholic form of Christianity that that, that took hold of me. I've always had evangelical friends, mm. um, but. Uh, I think it was the it was the Catholic form of Christianity which which drew me. Um, what about that specifically? The the more well the sacramental side, sacramental the, side. The, the Eucharist, it, yes. the Holy Communion, has always been absolutely fundamental, mm. absolutely fundamental to me to my to my devotional yeah. life. Um, I suppose the, the the depth and the richness of the whole Christian faith uh, in its totality. Uh, and not just a kind of exclusive focus upon the cross and conversion mm. as a result of the of the of the cross uh, i mean i 'm very drawn by eastern christianity and and always have been mm. with its emphasis upon theosis or mm. divinization, uh, as the great fathers used to say, you know God came human that humans might become divine, uh, which is a very biblical doctrine if one looks at Colossians and ephesians and and so on but it 's sadly neglected in western Christi- right. Christ- christianity so th- that whole idea of sh- of Christ coming and dwelling with us and us dwelling in Christ so that you know we 're changed into his mm. likeness uh, as he dwells. Within us, this and, is and you feel been, that's uh, lacking to some extent yes, in, in a more evangelical uh, yeah. kind of. Well, I haven't, view haven't. It may be there, but it's yeah. not. It's not placarded. Yes, sure. It's not. Yeah. It's not placarded. So um, it strikes me that you're very. I mean, I, I've done this very program with Rowan Williams in the past, yeah, and, and yeah. he's said very similar things. In fact, yeah. I think he almost was persuaded at one point in early in his yes. life to become a. To, to enter the Eastern yes, Orthodox yes, Church, yes. Um, because he was so drawn to that, yes. the, the ritual, the liturgy, the yes, the, yes. The, the mystical yeah. side, really, yeah. of, of, of the, that's emphasised there. Um, but you've you've obviously stayed the course in, in the Anglican Church. Yes, so I think anybody in my my position, uh, you ask yourself whether you should remain and uh, who is drawn to the Catholic form of Christianity, mm. uh, whether you should you shouldn't really be a Roman Catholic. Right. So I'm hugely drawn by the internationalism mm. uh, uh, of of the Roman Catholicism of it, you know, of its sort of steady being a person of dis- who likes things to be tidy and organised. I like, you know, the, I like the discipline of the mm. of the Roman Catholic Church. But in the end, I cannot, you know, go along with some of the things sure. which are ta- which are taught as essential to the faith. You know, the usual reason. Right. Um, and I'm hugely drawn to to Orthodox Christianity. Uh, but as Austin Farrer used to say, you know, he was—he too was, but but he's not a Slav or a Greek. And he felt uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, it, there are quite, quite it is quite a culturally manifested. It's sort very of, cultural, and yeah. it's very it's very unfortunate. It's very nationalistic. But uh, yes, there's. Uh, I mean, we're we're obviously skipping a lot of ground here, but obviously. In later years, you've, you've obviously, uh, having retired from that position as Bishop of Oxford, became Lord Harry's of Pentregoth. Mm. Um, that's the official mm. title mm. as as a peer in the House of Lords. Um, what sort of duties are involved when you're appointed to that kind of a position? Well, there's no duties at all. You turn up if you want to. I mean, it's totally, oh, right. voluntary, totally, totally voluntary. I mean, I used, I've been trying to do sort of three afternoons a week in the House of Lords. I'm actually cutting down now to, to two. You follow... 
uh, the issues you're concerned about as well as the main bills. I'm particularly focused on a certain number of human rights issues, which are the ones that matter to me. Uh, one of them is the Dalits, the former untouchables in India, mm. uh, who are terribly badly treated still, of course, across all those South a Asian countries. So I follow those issues as well as the sort of main... I mean, moment got the, we've got got the European Union withdrawal bill in the House of Lords, uh, and we were late there, mm. very very nice seeing seeing that through. Do do you enjoy the um, being in the centre in that sense of, well, of yes, political yeah, life? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't overrate it. But I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it, yes, it's 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 all right. It's not it's not the heart of me, no. but, but it, it it is it is a way where some sides of me can get. Get, you know, get, can get I mean, obviously, you were presumably attended the House of Lords quite regularly as a bishop as well. Yes, I did. Um, I you, did. You the, the reason, a, a one of the, the, I think the re only reason I was made a life peer was that actually I was active as a bishop, the most active of the bishops, I and I did do a they certain number you'd, of you'd, things. You'd get, like, get like, on with you know, it. Yeah. I chaired one. Yeah. Of, I chaired the Select Committee on Embryo Research, yeah. for example. You know, yeah. I've done one or two pretty key things yes. there as a, as a bishop. So that was the reason. Well, it would be fun to, to just dwell on some of those issues in the, in the next section of the programme before we also talk about The Beauty and the Horror. That's the latest book that Richard Harris, my guest on The Profile today, has written. I'm Justin Briley, and uh, The Profile brought to you, as always, in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like to read more interviews with Christians in all walks of life, do get a free sample copy of the latest edition, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And I'll be back with my guest, Richard Harris, in the next part of today's show, The Profile. There's a knife crime epidemic in our capital city. In the February edition of Premier Christianity magazine, meet the inspiring Christians bringing God to the gang leaders in the battle for London. Plus, Kay Warren talks about how her marriage to megachurch leader Rick Warren nearly hit rock bottom and what brought them back again. Sam Hales asks whether evangelicalism can survive in the age of Trump. Where's Sutton on what to do when God doesn't heal? And the amazing account of how Corrie Ten Boom's unshakable courage saw thousands of Jews rescued in World War II. All that plus much more. Ask for your free copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second half of today's Profile programme. I'm Justin Briley and you can find The Profile online at premierchristianradio.com slash The Profile. Lots of other episodes, you can download the podcast there. And indeed, you can find more interviews in our magazine as well, the monthly magazine, Premier Christianity magazine. Ask for a free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Richard Harris is my guest today on The Profile. He's former Bishop of Oxford. He's a life peer in the House of Lords. He's an author. He's a media broadcaster as well. And um, we were talking just at the end of that uh, last section, Richard, about the fact that you've you've had this role in the House of Lords for some time and sat on some important committees as well, looking at issues like um, fertilization, embryology. Mm. Um, I mean, you're then mixing, obviously, with scientists. Mm. Um, w w these are issues you, you've got a real interest in. Do people sort of tend to assume because you're coming to things as a Christian, you've kind of got a, a vested interest of sorts in, in how you're going to approach those kinds of issues? And is that ever an issue when, when you're kind of involved in that kind of uh, stuff? I, I don't think uh, it was an issue as far as my appointment uh, to 
chair the Select Committee on Human Embryology was concerned, I think um, uh, I, I was appointed because uh, I made a, a speech on the subject in the House of Lords where I tried to point out that the uh, Christian tradition about the moral status of the early embryo was not quite what the Roman Catholic Church thought it was. It was much more nuanced mm. uh, than that. And I suppose that must have impressed people that uh, you know, I would take a... Uh, uh, a, a more op- op- open yeah. position. I wouldn't mm. take a hard line position, nor would I take, you know, right. a very open position. Mm. I try to look at the, the evidence. We don't have time to go into all of it, but no. what broadly were the issues that you were trying to well, at to, that, come to grips at that, with? At that, at that stage, uh, there was the question uh, of uh, getting uh, stem cells mm. from embryos. Whether you, we can get we can get cells from any part of the human body, but mm. but, but if you get cells from uh, embryos, then uh, this means the destruction of the of the embryo. And stem and cell raised, research is very yes, it's all about these that, these that cells sta- that can that stage, produce was, any kind cer- of certainly part, at that yeah. stage is very very uh, yeah. important. It's a very very kind of burning issue there. Yeah. So that raises the question of what is the moral status of the of, of, the, of the early and, and em- can we, as it were. Produce embryos yes. for the purpose and when, of effectively and do, harvesting when, when do we them. Talk, yeah. When should we talk about a human person? Indeed. Uh, well, I was convinced theologically uh, that actually the fourteen-day limit, which is the one we have in law, mm. uh, is actually an appropriate point because that's the beginning of the nervous system, right. the, peyo- the point beyond which you get no more divisions into anything else. Mm. Before that, mm. you have this bundle of multiplying cells, but after about fourteen days or the the, what's called the emergence of the primitive streak, the beginning of the nervous system. You have an in, something which is individualized, yes. and that now that, that be, must have put you to some extent at odds with Christians and specifically Roman Catholics. I yeah, imagine. well, there were who, actually who, two, there but, were actually two Roman Catholic members of my committee. One extremely mm. distinguished philosopher. Mm. No, no, sorry, they, they, no, she was. There were we had a distinguished philosopher, but no, there was a two Roman two practicing Roman Catholics, yes. uh, but they felt they could go along with this, right? I mean, obviously, these are all decisions that sort of, yeah. you know, affect not just, you know, th- these aren't just ivory tower ethical yeah. issues. These are real world no, sort of uh, yeah. issues. Yeah. I, as far as I understand it, the, the, the medical stuff has moved on a bit now. To the, I think there's now technology enabling stem cells to be produced yeah, from, without necessarily yeah, having exactly. to use em- yeah. embryology yeah. and so on. Yeah. But um, th- this is all part of, you know, your, your varied and interesting career as, as in terms of what you've been involved in. And, and part of that has also been doing radio shows yeah, not yeah. dissimilar to this but yeah, um yeah. Uh, the bbc particularly you've been yeah. a regular contributor to thought for the day and so on um th- there's been a long-running sort of debate over thought for the day hasn't there on the bbc yeah. as to whether it should be opened up to yeah. other um, people of no faith humanists and so on and yeah. whether it's wrong to simply yeah. have people yeah. who are religious on what what's your your thinking on that as someone who's obviously contributed well many a time. yes well yes well i've been doing regularly since about 1972 right. believe, believe, believe probably it. one of the longest but, contributors well, yes, by, long, by a yeah. long way by yeah. a long way yeah exactly um i i think it's a that, that slot although the the uh it is sniped at a lot mm. by by media people. You know, they they even groan, they, John Humphrey they, sometimes yeah, even, <laughs> they groan about it. But in fact, uh, when a poll was commissioned amongst Radio Four listeners, it turned out to be the most popular of of all the items mm. uh, above sport, for example, yeah, of, of right. that. So you know, it has. I know a lot of people hate it, but actually, people as a whole, listeners mm. to uh, the Today program do do like it um i i mean 
it's a wonderfully privileged slot to have because we mm. have a very big audience. Yeah. But it's a very, very difficult slot to do. Yes. Um, and, uh, of course, we now have Buddhists, Hindus, and so on. Uh, That's it, obviously changed within your, yes, your that, time. Yes, that has certainly changed. Oh, yes, my, is, when is I that, first started doing the BBC, it was totally, totally different. It was exclusively different. Christian. To, really, totally, totally, totally different. How, I mean, in as much as it's, it's opened itself out in that way, do, do you... Uh, welcome that or do you find that that's sort of no, dilu- think, uh, diluted what can really be achieved through it or? i think it reflects that we are in a in a pluralist society and i mm. think that is that is right there's still a good body of christian contributors mm. to it which is good. and what about the the atheists and humanists who say we we want a piece of the pie as well why should it just be religious types who well who, i think get that i think i think i think we need to understand what thought for the day is i do not see it uh as a way of simply plugging one's own religion. Mm. I think that's not at all what it's all mm. about. It's meant to be a thought for the day, uh, which is derived from a particular perspective on, on the universe. Uh, if uh, there is an atheist who has a, a perspective on the universe which is derived from a serious moral tradition, mm. what it might, whatever it might be, yeah. Aristotelianism or, uh, or, or whatever, I myself don't see any any anything anything wrong uh, in in that but it, of course at the moment it's bbc policy not to to do it um and uh, you know that's that is that is that is that is policy i think uh, the important thing is to, you've got a perspective which actually really does illuminate life yes. a serious moral reli- or religious tradition indeed um let's turn to your book the beauty and the horror um and it really is summed up in in that uh, title because you you're both reflecting in this book on the 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 joy that we find in the world through art literature transcendent moments of experience and family life culture and yet at the same time we're faced with unspeakable horror and suffering mm. um both brought on us by our own free mm. actions but also just in a mm. sense part of the the mm. nature of of the world that we live in uh where the volcanoes that refresh the surface of the earth with necessary mm. minerals are also mm. the cause of destruction for people who, who live in their vicinity mm. and, and so on. Um, I mean, people have been asking this question yeah, ever since the book of Job, really, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, uh, why did God allow this sort of yeah, a world yeah, to, to be yeah. the one we live in? Um, if you were trying to encapsulate what you're trying to put across in this book, where would you, where would you begin? Well, I would begin by saying that when God decided to create the world, he said, let there be. He gave the world and all the forces within it a genuine autonomy, a genuine freedom. That is what it is to be created. To be created is to have a life of one's own, whether it's an amoeba, a mosquito, or whether it's, or whether it's you or me. And this autonomy comes to self-conscious freedom uh, in us human beings, uh, and of course, if we are genuinely free, we're free to make mistakes as well as to make good decisions. Mistakes cost lives, uh, and certainly manifestly evil choices are ghastly and destructive. Uh, so, you know, we cannot have free choice without the possibility of evil. Now, that's all, if you like, fairly obvious. I think a more sophisticated point is that we can't have rational beings like you and me without a certain stability and regularity in the environment. Uh, If I was suddenly to float up through the ceiling or drop through the floor, 
in, and we lived in an Alice in Wonderland world, so I didn't know whether the sun would rise tomorrow or mm. not. Uh, we wouldn't be able to plan. Uh, we would therefore not be able uh, to make rational decisions. Mind as we know it would not have evolved. And so it looks as though for, people to, for there to be people like you and me and all human beings, there has to be a kind of impersonality about nature, about everything nature, doing yeah. its own and thing. And that will inevitably and mean inevitably, that... It, inevitably mean uh, that, that, unfortunately, uh, it brings suffering and destruction. Because there's nothing wrong with, as we know, with volcanoes and earthquakes in themselves. They're simply the shifting of tectonic plates uh, on a star which is cooled enough to allow life, but is not so cooled that it won't have life. If it was any hotter or any colder, there wouldn't be life. It's because there's a, a plate on it. We can have uh, life, this sort of plate which which covers over the molten stuff inside, allows for... So all. it's it's sort it, of it, the... the the cost, if you like, of, of being the embodied co- conscious the, the, creatures the is, of, yes, is yes. at the cost of yes. obviously the, and, and the again, fragility of yeah. that, that life. Now, I, yes. can, I think all this makes, makes sense. In other words, there couldn't be people like you and me without... I can't see any other, other way uh, of creating rational beings except for something like this. But it still raises the question, and this is the overpowering question at the heart of the book, you know, was God created, justified in creating the world, mm. you know, if this was yeah. the, the, the cost of it? And this is Ivan Karamazov's question in the heart of the book, The Brothers Karamazov, where he tells horrific stories of the suffering of children, uh, and then he turns to his brother Alyosha and says, it's not God I don't believe in, Alyosha, it's just that I return him the ticket. Is this moral... T- moral protest uh, against God. Now, the implication of Ivan's Karamazov's question is that it would have been better if God had not created the world in the first place. And that, for me, raises the question as as to uh, whether I'm grateful that I'm alive, uh, are other people grateful that they're alive? Now, I can only answer that question for myself. Mm. I'm grateful that I'm alive. And I quote in the book a wonderful poem of W.H. Auden where he talks about raising his first fist in anger and despair and shouting against the sky. And then he keeps hearing the words, bless what there is for being. And I bless God for for Mm. my being, but I can't answer that question for anybody else. Other people have to answer that for themselves. Indeed. Uh, And I suppose... Ultimately, the question that many, uh, I suppose, an atheist is is asking is, couldn't God have have achieved this purpose of free human creatures with a bit less suffering, with a bit less gratuitous almost, you know, suffering that that does seem to exist in the world? Um, admittedly, if God stepped in every time people did wrong yeah, things, yeah. We, we, we wouldn't be able to, yeah. to have any consistency in life. But... You know, did the Holocaust really have to happen in order for... I mean, where... And without... It's hard to do this without sort of giving people a sort of cold, logical, rational sort of approach to God. Um, So it's it's, it's always going to be a difficult question to answer, isn't it? A terribly difficult question to answer. Uh, And the short answer... All we can say is it, it looks as though it has to be a universe, something like this. And as you already implied, if God kept on intervening to ensure that the, the bomb went off to explode Hitler, mm. uh, uh, if, if he kept on in, intervening, it would be such a higgledy-piggledy world uh, because everything has implications. If I'm driving along mm. the road and a car, a, a child runs across and there's a miracle so that I come 
to, to a vicious halt mm. to, so the child is saved. But what about the car behind me, the car behind that? Sure. You know, yeah. does one, this is not, does not, doesn't mean to say that God doesn't, in inverted commas, intervene or there's not something mm. called miracle. But it seems to me there has to be a limit uh, yes, if we're going to have the kind of character of the world. I mean, I mean, one obvious way in which you do believe God has, has intervened in the world is, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, he, I do. He, and, and, to some extent, that is the ultimate answer you give, I suppose, to, to yeah. someone like the brothers Karamazov yes. in terms of, of how you can hold on to faith in a, in a good God yes. despite the great suffering that exists. Yes, absolutely central to my book is Jesus uh, and the out, outlandish claim that, uh, that there's not only a wise and loving power behind this universe, but this wise and loving power has taken human form and disclosed his heart and mind to us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. His purpose is to unite our lives with his life for eternity and to reconcile all things to him. Mm. I mean, this is an extraordinarily bold claim, which I can quite understand why most people find totally un- And, and one which you don't particularly seek to kind of I, provide masses of evidence for. It's, it's more something that you... I mean, you believe there is some objective evidence if you look for it that in, in the claims of Jesus Christ. But but it's something for you that, that it, it, you have to, to want at some level in order to, to grasp hold of? Well, I, the, for me, the resurrection of Christ is crucial. I have actually written a little book many mm. years ago about the resurrection of, the, uh, of Christ as to uh, why, A, I think that the, 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 the story of the discovery of the early tomb is an authentic part of the early mm. Early, early tradition. I myself believe that the tomb, tomb was was empty, and that the disciples did have an ex- overpowering experience of the mm. of the risen Christ. Not, of course, a resuscitated body, but raised to a new form, mm. a new kind mm. of uh, of life. I mean, that's not the sort of thing that you can give any proof for. Of course. You can't, and there's always Hume's arguments, you know, that it's much more likely that people were deluded. Than, there's always that kind of argument. But that ignores the fact that uh, it, it's set against the background of all the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian belief and indeed the Jewish belief that, you know, God has wanted to disclose his purpose mm. from a Christian point of view. First of all, in the communal life of the ordered community life of the of the people of Israel, but then this coming to a focus in in Jesus himself. It's against that background Indeed. that the resurrection yes. and, and, and against the background of Jesus' proclamation that in his person and in his, the miracles that he did, this is the breaking into this world of the kingdom of God and that, mm. that, that uh, he's in that kingdom in relation to one whom he called Father. Um, it's, in, it's the only against that background you can see that the, the, the resurrection, it, it, it kind of fit, fits in. You can't prove it, but you yes. can see how it... And and to to the person suffering in the here and now, what in what sense do you believe Jesus Christ, a, you know, a person who lived two thousand years ago, was died and allegedly resurrected, as far as you're concerned? The what? How does that relate to someone suffering in in the here and now? Well, I mean, if one is ministering to somebody in the hearing and here and now, I mean, all you can do uh, is be alongside them, accomp- mm. accompany them, and try to some extent to to share their. Uh, distress and their and their pain and be and be be with them uh, and in that way you are also as it were living out the presence of of Christ in and through you to be with them that I believe that Christ is with them as as, as well 
um, and one tries to make this uh, sort of, as it were, sacramental presence through one's own present. Uh, it's no good for most people talking about, you know, giving sort of religious consolations and certainly no, you know, nothing worse than kind of trite words, Job's comforters in that, mm. in those... God has a their, plan. All that, all that, sort of, that sort of thing uh, is absolutely awful for people, I think. Um, but uh, sometimes it is right to pray with people or people ask for prayer. Now mm. that, that, that can be perfectly perfectly proper even sometimes with non non-believers mm. uh, it's you know it, it, it that's not an easy consolation but it, but it is something which can be done sensitively have you sort of had moments where prayer seems to have really made a difference to, to someone who has been in that kind of a situation or has has it's difficult to say when anything they mean and i don't do a lot of personal ministry at the moment. i'm not mm. in parish sure. ministry uh but i did go down to see somebody who was certainly a non-believer and atheist who I was working very closely with with a particular project through the House of Lords and um, uh, they very much just as you know towards the end uh, they I think um, they, they very much valued that you know I was there uh, and saying a prayer mm. um, in terms of the the ultimate hope we have I, that's also where where you land I think yeah, in terms yeah. of the the way we make sense yeah, of suffering yeah, yeah. to some extent I've, I've always felt that um from an atheistic world worldview well getting rid of god may sort of help to solve a sort of theological mm. conundrum mm. but it still leaves us with the fact of suffering mm. uh, and really that, that there is no rhyme or reason to it mm. it's, it's somewhat meaningless mm. uh, atheists often accuse christians who sort of defer Mm. the resolution of all this to some eternal mm. hope in the future mm. is, well, that's just your wishful mm. pie-in-the-sky mm. thinking, that's a handy get-out-of-jail mm. card. Mm. Why, why isn't it that for you? Why, why should we genuinely consider the, the fact that um, in, in the fullness of time, God will make sense of, of all the suffering and, and pain that we, we do experience? Well, I think it's a fundamental of the faith, first of all, the faith of the uh, of the church. And I don't see how one can have a Christian faith without it. It really puzzles me, uh, the number of people who claim to be Christian believers who actually don't believe in the afterlife. Wow. And, of course, it really puzzles me. And also with, you know, the number of liberal Jews, you know, who... Um, uh, I find that I find that very 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 puzzling. For me, it is an, it is one of the one of the great pillars. Of, there are a number of absolute pillars of the faith, without mm. which the whole thing comes tumbling down. Mm. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, mm. and the hope of everlasting life. These are three absolutely fundamental uh, pillars, and they they belong. The thing belongs together as a whole. Yes. If you pull one out, the whole thing mm. comes mm. tumbling down. And for me, it's not that I want to survive afterwards. I mean, I don't think in those sort of terms. It is about the justice of God. We believe that God is a just judge, uh, and that His justice will, in the end, be vindicated. His just and good purpose will, in the end, come through. Mm. Uh, and it clearly does not come through in the world as we have it in the moment. So it is absolutely fundamental to any kind of belief in a just and good God that there must be some some ultimate reconciliation mm. and resolution uh, of. Do do you think for for those who can't find it in themselves or for whatever reason have not come to that point of being able to believe in that kind of a, a future certainty? Who may think of themselves essentially as non-religious, yeah. atheistic, indeed, yeah. you know, 
in Western culture generally, yeah, that's yeah, that's the yeah, direction yeah, yeah, you know most yeah. people are going. They're, they they say oh, I'm not religious yeah, when they yeah. they tick the census and so on. Do you still think there is though some spark of people need that kind of meaning, that ultimate sort of reason, if you like, um, somewhere in the background, even if they don't maybe acknowledge it in Christianity per se. I'm always wary of, of, of speaking for, for other people. People have to, have to speak for themselves. Uh, and uh, a lot of people today uh, actually are coming to terms with death in a much easier way than was perhaps possible uh, in, in, in the past. They, they find meaning in their lives. They accept that death is part of life. And, and they don't bother themselves too much about these big questions. But this, we are in a very, very kind of secular society, which is in contrast to the rich of the world. Most of the world, as we know, takes religion seriously. It is mm. just Western Europe and, and the sort of east and west coast of the United States, really, where uh, the, in what Schlemecker called the, the cultured despisers have sort of pushed it off the, pushed it off, off, off the scene. Um, so, I, I mean, I, 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 all I can say is I think that uh, this particular secular period in, in human history in certain parts of the world, I'd be very surprised if it lasted. That's interesting. I mean, ultimately, do do you find that w- whether people say they're religious or not, they, they ultimately do have some kind of a, a belief um, in, in as much as most people may, may not go to church, but, but they'll talk about the power of love or the... Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, people. Yes. Yes. Well, if we call that religion, yes, of course. I mean, lots and lots of people don't believe in God, but certainly believe in the power of love, and they love their families, they love their children, they love their friends, uh, they want to do a good job. They're perhaps also uh, very good good neighbours. There's and lots of things they 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 believe in. Uh, There arises the question, of course, where they're going to ultimately get their moral values and standards from. It's interesting that Seamus Heaney before he died, said once uh, that he thinks that our society is now running on an unconscious of religion, uh, but he wasn't convinced that his grandchildren would have that. Um, I mean, if we take away the actually the, the religious roots of the moral perspective in which has so much shaped Western society and Western culture and our laws, if we take that away... Uh, is there any kind of comparably strong and rich tradition which will sustain uh, that kind, a kind of moral vision of life? I pose it simply as, as a, simply pose it as a question. It can't be taken for granted that there will be. And, and in, in as much as we perhaps are losing the the, the sort of distinctives of, of that Christianity has given us in society, do you do you fear for for whether people will have anything to undergird their I, I guess they, the character, virtue, their morality and so on? Well, in the end, what really matters, of course, is the family and the kind of... If a person is brought up in a family uh, with no religion but still very strong moral values, which is a loving, very loving family, of course, that's going to... Uh, that is go- that's the most essential thing, of course, mm. if, they're giving, mm. you know, if they're brought up in love with strong moral values. Um, but I think that... That, that people's lives are that for that degree impoverished. And, of course, people are growing up now. I mean, it's third and fourth generation, fourth generation of people have been really growing up without any really serious 
religious formation and nurture in their families. I mean, I lived through the 1960s. In the 1960s, everything really did change. Mm. It really did change mm. in the 1960s. Everything was kind of thrown away. And I think, as I say, it's now the third or fourth, probably the fourth generation of, of people who have not really had that kind of enrichment. As we close out this interview, I, as someone who has seen the particularly the Anglican Church um, yeah. in, in so many ways over so many decades and uh, lived through the, the yeah. 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s as well. Um, still, in a sense, um, dealing with issues today that are threatening to split it, I suppose it's always been a somewhat mm. somewhat mm. of a fragile communion anyway. Mm. Um, do, you feel, do you feel confident for the future or do you, do you, do you fear for the future in terms of... of where where the church is going in specifically in the UK I suppose but also globally well I suppose I mean I, I don't want to sound pious you know I'm not a kind of pious pious person but you know do try to leave that to God <laughs> I mean we to, if we have to face facts uh congregations are predominantly elderly yes. and there are not a lot of young people there are a fair number of very young children being brought up in church but the sort of teenagers and young people uh, you know, in their twenties and thirties, and not there is a, there is a generation a, there, gap. There is a huge yeah. kind of generation yeah. uh, gap uh, there, and um, uh, the best churches are facing it and doing something about it. Uh, and of course, the best churches in facing it are, of course, uh, are the are the evangelical churches. I'm not inserting myself an evangelical, but I think, but. Um, I saw, I think the evangelical tradition in the church saw what was happening long before other people woke up to it. Mm. And the Catholic tradition uh, got uh, split and decimated over the ordination of women uh, between traditional Catholics opposed to the ordination of women and um, uh, liberal Catholics, myself, were, were always very strongly in favor of the ordination of uh, of women and that so the catholic movement within church of england which was the dominant tradition really until the 1960s mm. Mm. dominated its leadership its ethos its cult and was hugely successful in certain kind of areas mm. um it, it you know it just went fat mm. uh, and uh, we now have a very different kind of uh, of of kind of ethos in the, in the in the church of england um and as i say um Evangelical churches, not the only churches trying to relate to young people, but they are by the far the best of it, yes, obviously. they're the most successful in that sense. I, but whether it be evangelical, Anglo-Catholic or whatever, do, I, I don't know. It, does God, as far as you're concerned, still have, have plans for, for the... Uh, for Anglicanism in, in the UK? Well, I, I haven't asked him because that's not the kind of question I ask. I leave, I leave the church to God and other people. I'm, my concern uh, is between the Christian faith and wider culture in which we live, art, literature, politics, ethics. That's, that's where I am on the, yeah. bo- on the borderlands. I've always happily left. The ch- I try to be a faithful churchman to do my job as a do my duty as a faithful churchman, but but uh, I'm happy to leave the the Church of England to God and other 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 people. <laughs> it's lovely to have been able to chat to you on the profile. And today. to you, Justin. Thank you very and much. And to you. Uh, you can find out more about Richard Harris um, by reading the latest book, The Beauty 
and the Horror, Searching for God in a Suffering World, published by SBCK, available now in paperback. And uh, do make sure to uh, tune in again at the same time next week for more interviews with uh, Christians in all walks of life. And you can find today's program as a podcast. If you go and search for it, you're looking for The Profile or find it from our website, premierchristianradio.com slash The Profile. Brought to you in association as ever with Premier Christianity magazine. For more on them and the free sample copy of the mag, do go to their website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Thanks for being with me this week. Coming up next, Premier Playback.